Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, the second installment in our series, Heroes Live Forever. And back again soon, thanks to all the great feedback we got from the first Heroes Live Forever episode we did just a few weeks ago. We have some fantastic stories for you today, and all kinds of heroes, some well-sung, and others from sports to World War II to folk heroes to a very special mom who loves stray dogs and an uncle of World War II fame. And we're asking you to send your hero story. It might be a mentor, a friend, a relative, a first responder, someone whom you admire greatly and would like to tell us about. Email me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com or contact me at facebook forward slash 1001heroes and we'll be sure to get your story in an upcoming episode in this series. Our first story is about a man who entered service in World War II as a conscientious objector, as a medic, his only weapons being his Bible and his faith. His name was Desmond Doss, and when Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941, he was a practicing Seventh-day Adventist and had a good job at the Newport News shipyard in Virginia which pretty well guaranteed him a deferment as he was already working for the war effort, building and repairing ships. He was a thin young man, not really fighting material, but he wanted to join the war to do whatever he could, so he signed on as a medic, and he was assigned to an infantry rifle unit. As he knew they would, problems began the first week of boot camp when he refused to pick up a rifle, and he was intimidated, scolded, assigned the train duty, and generally heckled, every waking hour. They tried to court-martial him, but he said he didn't believe in killing. He did believe in saving lives, and he wouldn't quit. But things began to turn around when the men discovered that Doss was an asset when it came to providing solutions for them, for blistered feet, where if someone collapsed from heat stroke, Doss was always there first. Slowly and begrudgingly, the men in his company came to respect him, and he bore even his worst offenders no grudges for the treatment he had received. Desmond served in combat on the islands of Guam, Leyte, and Okinawa in World War II. In each military operation, he exhibited extraordinary dedication to his fellow men. While others were taking life, he was busy saving lives. When the cry, Medic, rang out on the battlefield, he never considered his own safety. He repeatedly ran into the heat of battle to treat a fallen comrade and carry him back to safety. All this while the enemy bullets whizzed past and mortar shells exploded all around him. Several times while treating a wounded soldier, Desmond was so close to enemy lines he could hear the whispering of Japanese voices. In May 1945, as German troops were surrendering on the other side of the world, Japanese troops were fiercely defending to their last man, the only remaining barrier, Okinawa and the Maeda Escarpment, to an Allied invasion of their homeland. The men in Desmond's division were repeatedly trying to capture the Maeda Escarpment, an imposing rock face the soldiers called Hacksaw Ridge. After the company had secured the top of the cliff, the Americans were stunned when suddenly enemy forces rushed them in a vicious counterattack. Officers ordered an immediate retreat. Soldiers rushed to climb back down the steep cliff. All the soldiers, except one. Less than one-third of the men made it back down. 
The rest lay wounded, scattered across enemy soil, abandoned, and left for dead, if they weren't already. One lone soldier disobeyed orders and charged back into the firefight to rescue as many of his men as he could, before he either collapsed or died trying. His iron determination and unflagging courage resulted in at least 75 lives saved that day. It was May 5th, 1945, his Sabbath, and it was Desmond Doss. Eventually, the Americans took Hacksaw Ridge. Okinawa was captured inch by bloody inch. Several days later, during an unsuccessful night raid, Desmond was severely wounded. Hiding in a shell hole with two riflemen, a Japanese grenade landed at his feet. The explosion sent him flying. The shrapnel tore into his leg and up to his hip. He treated his own wounds as best he could. While attempting to reach safety, he was hit by a sniper's bullet that shattered his arm. His brave actions as a combat medic were then done, but not before insisting that his litter-bearers take another man first before rescuing him. Wounded, in pain, and losing blood, he still put others ahead of his own safety. He would choose to die so another could live. After all, that's what he'd read in the Bible. He received the Medal of Honor from President Roosevelt for his actions that day, and in addition to his Medal of Honor, Desmond Doss received a Bronze Star for Valor with one oak leaf cluster, that signifying he'd received two Bronze Stars, a Purple Heart with two oak leaf clusters, that signifying he had received three Purple Hearts, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with three Bronze Stars, and Beachhead Arrowhead signifying he'd served in four combat campaigns, including an amphibious landing under combat conditions. The Good Conduct Medal, the American Defense Campaign, and the not-so-common Presidential Unit Citation given to the 1st Battalion, 307 Infantry, 77th Infantry Division for securing the Maida Escarpment. Before being discharged from the Army in 1946, Desmond developed tuberculosis. He would spend most of the next six years in hospitals. Cold, wet, sleepless nights, shivering in a muddy foxhole in the islands of the Pacific, had taken their toll. As the illness progressed, his left lung had to be surgically removed along with five ribs. For the rest of his life, he survived on a single lung until it too failed. At the age of 87, Corporal Desmond Thomas Doss died on March 23rd, 2006 after being hospitalized with difficulty breathing. A true hero, he's buried in the National Cemetery, Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you haven't seen the movie they made about him called Hacksaw Ridge, we highly recommend it. John Chapman was one of those guys that just seemed to march to the beat of a different drum. He was known to wander barefoot from state to state in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio wearing threadbare clothes, sporting a tin hat that he used for cooking, carrying a bag over his shoulder, doing a little preaching here, and looking for unclaimed land where he could plant seeds that would grow into trees there. It was early in the 1800s, and he'd been told that if you planted, fenced, and kept up with a 50-tree fruit orchard on open property, you could come back and claim the land for your own, in accordance with the homestead law, after a few years. His father, who had served as a Minuteman at the Battle of Bunker Hill in the American Revolution, had taught him farming 
and John had learned well, becoming a first-class orchardist and nurseryman. With starting a chain of orchards in mind, he started out on a journey that would last his whole life. He knew how to survive on very little, and he thrived on it, studying the religious teachings of Swedenborg that pretty much said that if you lived your life on earth simply and without all the trimmings and comfort, your life in heaven would be pretty cushy. So he lived it, and he preached it. He was also caring of the wild animals and never hunted them, becoming a vegetarian and a peaceful man in all his ways. So in his travels through the Midwestern and Northern U.S. states, Chapman would plant swaths of seeds to begin an orchard, then sell them to settlers once the land had grown bountiful. This made him quite the land baron as he traversed a 100,000 square miles of Midwestern wilderness and prairie. The fruit that John favored for planting were small and tart apples, called spitters, named for what you'd likely do if you took a bite of one. But this made them ideal for making hard cider and applejack. And for many years in the U.S., in fact, right up till Prohibition in the 1920s, most apples were grown for cider, hard or soft, depending on how long they were allowed to ferment. Apple cider was the drink of choice, taking the place of wine and beer, and even coffee and tea. So apples that could produce cider had value indeed. Chapman stayed with his orchard planting for years and saw lots of ups and downs in the market, especially when prohibition of liquor became law and the government started tearing down orchards that could produce cider apples. It wouldn't have mattered anyway, as money wasn't his primary interest. It seemed that just spreading nature around made him happy. Because of his travels, his unusual attire, and his deeply religious values, which he didn't mind sharing in every town he visited, he'd become a legend by the time he died in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now John might never have saved a family from a burning house or dived on a live grenade to save his pals, but he became a larger-than-life folklore hero, which just goes to show you that anyone can do it if they have a dream and follow it far enough. And the guys who were opening up all these tap houses recently will tell you that hard cider is enjoying its biggest comeback in history. So next time you enjoy a mug of hard cider, offer a toast to John Chapman, who millions know today as Johnny Appleseed. And if you should ever get the chance to visit Nova, Ohio, take a moment to see one of his trees, still standing and over 175 years old, and still producing tart green apples for applesauce and cider. It seems sometimes that sports and comic book heroes get all the glory, and it's good to have heroes. But the heroes that have a profound effect on you are often quiet, unassuming people who do things out of care and kindness and respect. These people tend to get overlooked, and that's what makes stories like this one, a story about a mom who had dedicated her life to helping homeless animals, so very special. The story was sent to us by Bambi Parsons, who writes, Hello, I have a hero story for you. It's about my mom, who ran the Miguel County Animal Outreach, which was a pet adoption place every Saturday and Sunday for years. No matter the weather, she would go to the field beside Walmart in Marion, North Carolina, and set up the canopy cages and other equipment to adopt out cats and dogs. She did this for ten years, and nobody gave her hardly any recognition for it. 
She would also take some of the animals herself and keep them at her house until they became adopted. She would also take them to people who, for one reason or another, couldn't make it to the adoption center. And if the people couldn't afford the adoption fees, she would waive them as long as she was sure they would give the animal a good home. She adopted out over 1,000 homeless animals. My mom's name is Joanne Parsons. She also drove her truck in the July 4th parade and the Veterans Day parade. And on either side of her truck were picture posters of dogs that had been honored for their military service. Their pictures included their names and which branch of the service they served in and the years they served. She researched this all on her own. I know this for a fact because I was there. And that's my hero story. Your fan, Bambi Parsons. And our answer. Bambi, I know our listeners are picturing your mom driving her truck in those parades with all those pictures of hero dogs. And we're guessing that a few of these dogs made her roll call. We all owe a lot to Sergeant Stubby, Chips, Sarby, Luca, Diesel, Nemo, and Cairo, to name just a few. And your mom can probably name a lot more. Your mom's a very special person, and so are you for being able to recognize that and taking the time to write us. A big thanks from us to your mom, and she's definitely a hero. Thank you so much for sending your story. The story of the Coast Guard lifeboat skiff CG36500 and its extraordinary mission in a brutal nor'easter is the stuff of legend, thanks to a Disney film titled The Finest Hours. In reality, there were two dramatic rescues of tanker crews going on that stormy winter night in that deadly nor'easter, as the SS Fort Mercer and the SS Pendleton were disabled and sinking in cold, wind-driven high seas, and there were many heroes. We'll begin with the story of Bernie Weber, who is the central character in the movie The Finest Hour. On February 18, 1952, a four-man crew skippered by the Milton's minister's son named Bernie Weber was summoned to brave blinding snow and waves the size of buildings to save 32 merchant men clinging to life on the tanker, the Pendleton, that had been split in half by the force of the storm. That lifeboat was meant to carry no more than 20, but double that number of men wedged into that boat and returned to safety. The Pendleton, a tanker carrying kerosene and heating oil, had been traveling from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to Boston, Massachusetts. It was hit by the violent storm suddenly, and the equipment to send out a distress call was lost. The seas were breaking in every direction, said one of the ship's survivors, Chief Engineer Ray Seibert, shortly after the ordeal. The tanker cracked in half right through number eight hold, just forward of midship. Right up to that time, we had no warning anything was wrong. When the winter nor'easter broke the SS Pendleton in half, approximately one mile off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, eight men who were in the bow of the ship at the time, including the captain, lost their lives. The ship broke apart with a slew of sudden roaring, cracking noises. Ray Seibert said that the ship breaking apart sounded like the roar of thunder. That left 33 men in the stern of the ship. They feared a similar fate as the stern drifted in 60-foot seas 
toward the treacherous Chatham sandbar. At the Coast Guard base in Chatham, the first distress call came through and the larger, better equipped lifeboat had just been sent out across the treacherous sandbar and into high waves to rescue another tanker in serious trouble. It was considered basically an impossibility that the remaining smaller lifeboat could even make it out into the high seas that night. Bernie Weber would later write, my God, do they really think a lifeboat and its crew could actually make it that far out to sea in this storm and find the broken ship amid the blinding snow and raging seas with only a compass to guide them? If the crew of the lifeboat didn't freeze to death first, how would they be able to get the men off the storm-tossed sections of the broken tanker? They had no radar on that boat, and their compass was soon torn from its mounts and lost. All they had was young Weber's knowledge of the sandbar and the coastline. But at night, in high blinding snow-laden winds and waves as high as tall buildings? When the second call came through to Chatham, fearing that the Coast Guard's 36-foot CG36500 motor lifeboat was no match for such treacherous seas, some crew members chose not to partake in the mission and instead made themselves scarce. Three men volunteered to go with Bernie Weber to help the Pendleton survivors. All heroes, Petty Officer 2nd Class Andy Fitzgerald, Seaman Richard Livesey, and Seaman Irvin Mask. Against all odds, they made it past the treacherous sandbar, sometimes submerging the small boat beneath towering waves then striking out blindly through the snow and freezing water to where they guessed the broken tanker would be. The high swells through the sandbar had wrecked havoc on the boat. One such swell crashed down over the boat, knocking over Coxswain Weber. In addition, the windshield on the Coxswain flat was shattered into pieces and the compass was torn from its mounts, leaving them with nothing to guide them to the ship or allow them to find their way back. In the ocean, at night, in wind, and high seas, and driving snow, you have no idea what's east, west, north, or south. You're running totally on gut instinct. They were left with only a searchlight to help them locate the Pendleton in the darkness. Finally, it was the sound of twisting metal that alerted them to the broken Pendleton's location. They found it, and were able to approach, one wave at a time, the 30-foot Jacob's Ladder which had been thrown over the side. The 40 to 60 foot waves were slamming the lifeboat up against the hull of the broken tanker, but they were able to get all but one of the Pendleton survivors into their craft, saving 32 of the 33 men who had been in the stern. In all, a total of nine Pendleton sailors lost their lives. Of the 84 crew members who were on the two ships that broke in half, the SS Pendleton and the SS Fort Mercer, 70 men were rescued and 14 lost their lives. The Fort Mercer, an oil tanker that had been traveling from Louisiana to Maine, broke apart at around 8 a.m. on the morning of February 18, 1952. It split in two a few hours after the SS Pendleton, which broke apart at about 5.50 a.m., less than 40 miles away. Unlike the Pendleton, which waited in silence for eight hours to be discovered, the Fort Mercer was able to send out an SOS before she broke in half. 38 men from the Fort Mercer were eventually rescued, and five lost their lives. The rescue attempt for the SS Fort Mercer was almost just as amazing as the Pendleton rescue effort. 
William R. Keeley Jr. earned a gold life-saving medal for his efforts, guiding a small surf boat to the Fort Mercer in heavy seas. At one point, his small boat slammed into the Fort Mercer's hull. Keeley and his crew recovered two survivors before they returned to the larger Coast Guard vessel, the CGC Yakutat, as they took on water. Keeley was joined by other ships, which assisted in the rescue. The last survivor jumped to safety from the Mercer's bow section just 17 minutes before it reared up and sank. For their heroic efforts, the four-man crew of the motor lifeboat, including Bernie Weber, Richard Livesey, Andrew Fitzgerald, and Irvin Mask, were each awarded the Coast Guard's Gold Life-Saving Medal. Weber credits the Lord as having a hand on the tiller during the rescue. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We recently received a letter from one of our fans, Anthony Ortiz, that reads this way. He had heard an earlier episode and was commenting on the story we had done on Chesty Puller. Hello, John. My family is full of Marines, and I grew up hearing all about Chesty. I even read his biography. Great book. However, most folks don't know this, but he and General George S. Patton were actually cousins. Explains a lot when it comes to their fighting tactics. Now, Chesty is without a doubt a great Marine, but my favorite will always be Marine Sergeant Major Daniel Joseph Daly. Now, that's a Marine. Maybe you could do a story on him someday. Our answer? Thanks, Anthony. And here's the story on Sergeant Major Dan Daly. Semper Fi, and thanks for your note. Sergeant Major Daniel Joseph Daly is generally known and remembered as one of the most legendary U.S. Marine Corps heroes. Born on November 11, 1873, in Glen Cove, New York, Daly was 25 when he enlisted for the Spanish-American War. Although he stood just 5 feet 6 inches and weighed a notch over 130 pounds, Daly had a good record as an amateur pugilist. You might remember from our first Heroes Live Forever episode that Audie Murphy was close to that size, in height and weight. Daly was sent to China as part of the U.S. Legation Guard at Beijing at the start of the Boxer Rebellion. What was the Boxer Rebellion, you might be asking? From 1896 to 1900, because of growing economic impoverishment, a series of unfortunate natural calamities, and unbridled foreign aggression, as well as missionary work in the area, armed peasants trained in hand-to-hand combat called the Boxers, began to increase their strength in the provinces of North China. In 1898, conservative, anti-foreign forces won control of the Chinese government and persuaded the boxers to drop their opposition to the Qin Dynasty and unite with it in destroying the foreigners. The governor of the province of Shandong began to enroll boxer bands as local militia groups, changing their name from Yahiquan to Yahituan, Righteous and Harmonious Militia. Many of the Quinn officials at this time apparently began to believe that boxer rituals actually did make them impervious to bullets. And in spite of protests by the Western powers, 
They and Sixy, the ruling empress dowager, continued to encourage the group. Christian missionary activities helped provoke the boxers. Christian converts flouted traditional Chinese ceremonies and family relations, and missionaries pressured local officials to side with Christian converts, who were often from the lower classes of Chinese society, in local lawsuits and property disputes. By late 1899, the boxers were openly attacking Chinese Christians and Western missionaries. By May of 1900, boxer bands were roaming the countryside around the capital at Beijing. Finally, in early June, an international relief force of some 2,100 men was dispatched from the northern port of Tianjin to Beijing. On June 13th, the Empress Dowager ordered imperial forces to block the advance of the foreign troops and the small relief column was turned back. Meanwhile, in Beijing, the boxers burned churches and foreign residences and killed suspected Chinese Christians on sight. On June 17th, the foreign powers seized the Daegu forts on the coast in order to restore access from Beijing to Tianjin. Then things took a nasty turn. The next day, the Empress Dowager ordered that all foreigners be killed. The German minister was murdered, and the other foreign ministers and their families and staff, together with hundreds of Chinese Christians, were besieged in their legation quarters and in the Roman Catholic Cathedral in Beijing. As you might expect, an international force of some 19,000 troops was assembled, most of the soldiers coming from Japan and Russia, but many also from Britain, the United States, France, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. Enter Sergeant Major Dan Daly. On August 14, 1900, during the epic 56-day siege of the International Compound, a fierce boxer assault pushed back a German outpost, which created an open flank for the American position. In order to buy time to re-establish the defensive line, Daly volunteered to assume a lone post on the Tartar Wall, about 100 yards in front of the Marines' main line, as the other Marines were fortifying the embassy. Armed with only a bolt-action rifle and a bayonet, he was spending the night alone on the dangerously exposed position. That night, a huge force of Chinese boxers started rushing the American embassy with torches, rifles, and various other weaponry raised above their heads, screaming like banshees. They had come to destroy the consulate, and Daly was the only man between this rampaging horde and the diplomatic legation, which was housing hundreds of people. Daly was up against an entire company of boxers with a single rifle and a bayonet. He started doing what Marines do best, and he fought back. The next morning, the rest of Private Daly's squad arrived at the barricade Daly had been charged with defending. Through the smoke and the carnage, they saw Dan Daly sitting on the fortifications puffing a smoke, surrounded by the bodies of 200 slain boxers. For his actions in single-handedly defending the legation in the face of impossible odds, Private Daly received the Congressional Medal of Honor. In 1914, Daly, now a gunnery sergeant, mainly because he was refusing to move up in rank because he didn't want to miss the fighting, was sent to Haiti serving in a platoon that had been sent out on a reconnaissance patrol deep into the Haitian countryside. One day, as they were fording a small river, the Marines found themselves in the middle of a deadly ambush. 
400 Haitian Caicos rebels poured fire into the 35-man platoon from three sides of the river, tearing into the U.S. troops. The Marines fought hard and managed to push their way across the river, where they set up defensive positions and tried to fight off their attackers. Unfortunately, the platoon's heavy machine gun had fallen in the initial pandemonium and was now lying at the bottom of the river. Things were looking pretty bleak for the heavily outnumbered Marines. Then, Sergeant Daly stepped up. He made his way out from the American positions in the middle of the night, jumped into the river, pulled the machine gun up, strapped it to his back, and snuck back to join his platoon, cleaning the actions and getting the gun back in service. Following morning, the now heavily armed Marines split into three fire teams and swept through the jungle, completely destroying the opposing forces. It was in that battle that Daly earned his second Congressional Medal of Honor. After Haiti, Daly served fleet duty aboard the USS Newark, the USS Panther, the USS Cleveland, the Marietta, the Mississippi, the Ohio, and the Macias, and saw combat in Cuba, Mexico, Puerto Rico, and Panama, and served on Marine bases in eight different U.S. cities. In 1917, France and Germany were in the middle of the biggest and deadliest war the planet had ever seen. The war to end all wars, they said. And the U.S. decided to send in the Marines to win the Great War. And now, at age 44, Daly wanted to fight. And they put him in. He fought in several campaigns with the American Expeditionary Force in France and won combat medals three more times. Once when he crawled out under heavy enemy fire and rescued a half a dozen wounded Marines who were pinned down. Once when he single-handedly captured 13 German soldiers. And once when he took out a heavily fortified German machine gun nest all by himself using nothing more than a handful of grenades and a Colt 45 automatic. He was also wounded three times in the process. And he wasn't done yet. Daly's greatest moment in World War I came during the intense fighting at the Battle of Belleau Wood. On June 5, 1918, the 44-year-old Daly risked his life to extinguish a fire in an ammunition dump near Lucy de Bocage. Daly's Marines were later surrounded by Germans and were outnumbered two to one. They were also outgunned and couldn't escape their situation without first destroying a number of German machine gun nests. They'd been pinned down for hours by a non-stop hail of artillery and gunfire, and things were looking bad. At the worst point, when it looked like all hope was lost, a lone figure jumped up onto the earthworks the American Marines had been using for cover. Sergeant Dan Daly looked down the line, clutched his rifle, and shouted, Come on, you sons of bitches! You want to live forever? Before charging out to meet the enemy the men of the United States Marine Corps saw this act of bravery and decided, no, they did not want to live forever. Marines up and over became the battle cry that would be heard in every battle after that day. On June 10th, a German machine gun section advanced close to Daly's company and pinned it down. Daly, armed with only a 45 caliber automatic pistol and hand grenades, single-handedly charged and eliminated the Germans. Later that day, he brought in under heavy fire several wounded Marines during a German attack near the village of Borishas. Daly was wounded again on June 21st, but later fought in the St. Mihiel and Meuse-Argonne offensives. 
He was wounded twice more on October 8th, which took him out of combat. For his actions at the Battle of Belleau Wood, Daly was recommended through Army Channels for his third Medal of Honor. Someone in the chain of command, however, just could not accept the idea of anyone having three Medals of Honor. So Daly was instead awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and later the Navy Cross and France's Medal Militaire. After the armistice, Daly served in the Army of Occupation in Germany. His wounds and his age finally did catch up with him, and in 1919 he was placed on the list of the Fleet Marine Corps Reserve. He then worked as a bank guard on Wall Street and lived quietly with his sister in New York City, officially retiring from the Marine Corps on February 6, 1929. Daly is still recognized today as one of the greatest Marines that ever wore the uniform. Thank you, Anthony Ortiz, for sending us his name and for being a great fan of the show. There were a lot of heroes that came out of World War II, and the men of the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment were no exception. I'm going to give you a little background on the 505th and the story of how they fought at St. Mary Gleese, dropping from the sky the day before D-Day in an attempt to prevent the Germans from sending reinforcements toward the beaches of Normandy. And then we'll share an email from one of our fans, Mike DeLuca, that was sent to us, asking if we would share a name of one of those heroes, his uncle, Rocky Michelow, G Company, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, and the 82nd Airborne in this series. Under the command of Colonel James M. Gavin, the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, PIR, was activated at Fort Benning, Georgia, on July 6th of 1942, during World War II, assigned to the 82nd U.S. Airborne Division under the command of Major General Matthew Ridgway out of Fort Bragg. You listeners might remember us mentioning Colonel Gavin in a recent episode we did titled Operation Market Garden, where Gavin jumped with his men in Holland and they fought against heavy opposition to clear a path for a fast assault into the heart of Germany. In April, in preparation for the Allied invasion of Sicily, codenamed Operation Husky, the regiment was moved to Tunisia in North Africa, where they completed six weeks of training. The 505th made its first combat jump behind enemy lines into Gila in the early hours of July 10, 1943, which was the first regimental-sized combat jump in the history of the United States Army. High winds on the 505th's drop zone caused, caused a large number of the regiment to be scattered all over the island, with up to 100 men landing in the British 8th Army sector. The 505th suffered heavy losses during the relatively brief campaign, including Lieutenant Colonel Arthur F. Gorham, the 1st Battalion commander, who was killed. The regiment then returned to North Africa in August for a refit to absorb replacements before taking part in the assault on Salerno, Italy, on the night of September 14th, where they made their second combat jump. The regiment continued to fight in the Italian campaign, where the 505th, aided by tanks of the British 23rd Armored, captured the city of Naples in early October, later helping the Allies breach the Volturno Line before returning to Naples for occupation duty. In the American airborne landings in Normandy in June of 1944, the 505th PIR actually jumped before its scheduled H-hour, thus earning their motto, H-. Most of us have heard the stories of heroism and sacrifice by the men of the 82nd and 101st Airborne, including the men of the 505th 
and 506th PIR, respectively, at the little French crossroads of St. Mary Glise, thanks to the movies like Band of Brothers, which was the story of Easy Company of the 101st Airborne's 506. Located seven miles inland from Utah Beach, St. Mary Glise has earned a special place in military history. As we announced earlier, we recently received a hero's letter from one of our fans, Mike DeLuca, whose uncle made four combat jumps for 82nd Airborne's 505th in Europe and lived to tell about them. On the night of June 5, 1944, D-Day-1, and all across Normandy in the early hours of D-Day, chaos reigned. Small groups and individual parachutists jumped into German positions and fought pitched battles with the enemy in the dark. Some troops landed in trees and dangled helplessly till they could either cut themselves down with their combat knives or were shot to death by the Germans. Others drowned in flooded fields, pulled underwater by their heavy equipment. Flaming transport planes crashed or exploded in midair. Farmhouses became fortresses. Bridges became barriers and roadways became killing zones. Robert Bob Nyland, H Company, 505th, one of the now-famous Nyland brothers of Tonawanda, New York, who sadly contributed to the story of four brothers, three of which were dead, or presumed dead, when the last was called back, and the Nylands of the story that inspired Saving Private Ryan, was killed on the 6th, and his brother Preston, who was a part of the assault on the beaches at Normandy, was killed only seven miles away within the same 24-hour period. Duke Boswell, G Company, 505th, recalled, When we jumped, we floated over the edge of the town. There was fire coming up. We could see the tracers from the machine guns. And you know for every tracer round, you can see there's about ten bullets in between. When they went by you, they'd pop and make you kind of jump. It's funny. You jump with 10,000 troops and you hit the ground... And you're all alone. That's a hell of a thing. For a moment or so, you're right there by yourself. Period. We actually hit our designated target right outside St. Mary Glees. I think that all of the other units, including the Pathfinders that went in ahead of us, missed their targets. I landed within a half mile of St. Mary Glees, or closer. Most of the parachutists landed safely in the dark fields around St. Mary Glees, but some of them primarily from F Company, 505th, were coming down in the very center of the town, where the light from the burning Heron House made it easy for the Germans to spot them. Breaking out of their momentary bewilderment, the German soldiers suddenly unshouldered their Mausers and Schmeisers and began firing up at the descending forms. The paratroops hit the ground or landed in trees or snagged their chutes on utility poles killed in their harnesses even before they could reach their Thompson submachine guns or remove their disassembled rifles from their carrying cases and put them together. It was an unmitigated slaughter. As Lieutenant Colonel Krause's group crept closer to the town, it looked like everything was over. The fire was out, the townsfolk had returned to their homes, and the German soldiers had also vacated the square by the big church, apparently thinking the battle was over, not just beginning. Smoke still filled the air, and bodies of dead paratroopers hung from trees and poles or lay sprawled on the pavement. By the next day, the town was securely in the hands of the 82nd. Like the battles for scores of towns and villages in Normandy, the war passed through St. Mary Glees, then moved on toward the east, 
leaving hundreds of dead and wounded, both combatants and civilians, in its wake. But the dead were and are remembered to this day by the French. In September of 44, the unit then participated in Operation Market Garden. The 505th, later in December, fought in the Battle of the Bulge, the largest battle fought on the Western Front during World War II. By the end of the war, the 505th was awarded three foreign distinguished unit citations, the French Forger, the Netherlands Military Order of William, and the Belgium Forger. Following the German surrender in May of 1945, the regiment served as part of the Allied Occupation Force in Berlin. And that brings us to a letter we received recently from Mike DeLuca that reads this way. Good morning, John. Love your podcast. I'm a loyal subscriber and love the variety of topics. I especially love the Heroes Live Forever podcast. In line with that topic is a story that is near and dear to me and my family. My uncle, Rocky Michelo, served in World War II as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne, G Company, 505th. He signed up the day after Pearl Harbor and was not an American citizen yet, but that didn't stop him. He made it through training at Fort Benning during the frying pan days when the heat was unbearable. He made all four jumps with his regiment, Sicily, Italy, Normandy, and Holland. He was sworn in as an American citizen the night before his first jump for fear of being captured and executed by the Italian government as a traitor. He was sworn in by Matthew B. Ridgway. D-Day brought Rocky to Normandy where his regiment jumped into St. Mary Glise. The 82nd, with G Company in the lead, liberated the town before all others as Rocky and his company were engaged in nasty fighting with the SS all through the hedgerows. After St. Mary Glees, they headed down to the Murderette River. Here, Rocky was awarded the Bronze Star for rescuing a soldier trapped upside down in a truck overturned in an ice-cold creek. Rocky dove down several times to clear away debris that trapped the soldier. He also earned the soldier's medal and purple heart with oak leaf cluster for twice being injured in battle and returning. He was one of the few that made it through all six campaigns. There's a page dedicated to Rocky on the 505th Regimental Combat Team's website. And then Mike writes, On the lighter side, I got a story from Rocky's cousin about his war days. He was General Gavin's translator during the invasion of Sicily and Naples. When they got to Naples, Rocky went AWOL with a few platoon mates to see his family, and they crept back into camp at night, undetected. The next day, Gavin said, I heard you have family here. Let's go see them, as they were riding through town and the locals were waving at General Gavin. Rocky was yelling back at them in Italian. I wasn't here. You didn't see me here. Also, Rocky, being an Italian citizen, didn't have permanent status as a U.S. citizen at the time he entered the Airborne. He was sworn in the night before the jump into Sicily. If he'd been captured, the Geneva Convention rules for VOWs wouldn't apply since he was an Italian citizen. So he became an American citizen that night. He was involved in the local high school rowing team. They dedicated a crew boat to him named the Rocky Michelo. I hope you can take a minute to read this story as it's definitely worth the hero status. Thank you, John, for producing such an excellent podcast and being able to mention everyday heroes. Mike, 
Thank you for letting us know about your uncle, and let him and his comrades know that we appreciate all they sacrificed to keep the world free. It isn't easy to be a hero, especially when it involves going up against people you know and work with. Most of the time, when we see co-workers doing something wrong, we keep our mouths shut for fear of losing our jobs. In the New York City Police Department, back in the 60s and 70s, corruption was running rampant. And no one was speaking up, because if you did, you were signing your own death warrant. But one guy couldn't take it anymore. He had a long, honest streak, and he was willing to put his life on the line. His name was Frank Serpico. Police officer Frank Serpico exposed corruption in the New York City Police Department. He was the first officer to testify against another officer. He was born April 14, 1936, in Brooklyn. He became a New York City police officer in 1959 at the age of 23 and ended up serving for 12 years. He served on both uniformed and plainclothes patrol in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Harlem. He wore long hair for his undercover work, which marked him as an outsider or hippie when he was doing uniformed work, and he was seeing a lot of the underbelly of a corrupt police department in which many officers were on the take, and corruption was rampant. He began to report on that corruption within the department, and in 1970, the New York Times did a two-page article on police corruption, using much of Serpico's information. And it didn't take long before they tied that to him, which put a target on his back. This was as good as signing his own death warrant. He continued to work and do his job, while fellow officers were making a life a living hell for him. Serpico was shot during a drug arrest attempt on February 3, 1971, at 778 Driggs Avenue in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Four officers from the Brooklyn North Police Precinct received a tip that a drug deal was about to take place. Two policemen, Gary Roteman and Arthur Cesar, stayed outside, while the third, Paul Haley, stood in front of the apartment building. Serpico climbed up the fire escape, entered by the fire escape door, went downstairs, listened for the password, then followed two suspects outside. The police arrested the young suspects and found one had two bags of heroin. Haley stayed with the suspects and Rotman told Serpico, who spoke Spanish, to make a fake purchase attempt to get the drug dealers to open the door. The police went to the third floor landing. Serpico knocked on the door, keeping his hand on his revolver. The door opened a few inches, just far enough to wedge his body in. Serpico called for help at that point, but his fellow officers ignored him. Serpico was then shot in the face by the suspect with a 22 long rifle pistol, and the bullet struck just below the eye, lodging at the top of his jaw. He fired back, fell to the floor, and began to bleed profusely. His police colleagues refused to make a 1013 dispatch to police headquarters, indicating that an officer had been shot. An elderly man who lived in the next apartment called the emergency services instead, reporting that a man had been shot and stayed with Serpico. When a police car arrived, aware that Serpico was a fellow officer, they transported him in the patrol car to Greenpoint Hospital. The bullet had severed an auditory nerve, leaving him deaf in one ear and he has since suffered from chronic pain from bullet fragments lodged in his brain. He was visited the day after the shooting by Mayor John B. Lindsay and Police Commissioner Patrick B. Murphy. 
and the police department purposely harassed him with hourly bed checks, apparently hoping that might rush him to his grave. The circumstances surrounding Serpico's shooting quickly came into question. Serpico, who was armed during the drug raid, had been shot only after briefly turning away from the suspect when he realized that the two officers who had accompanied him to the scene were not following him into the apartment. Raising the question whether Serpico had actually been brought to the apartment by his colleagues to be murdered. There was never any formal investigation. On May 3, 1971, New York Metro Magazine published an article about Serpico, Portrait of an Honest Cop. On May 10, 1971, he testified at the departmental trial of an NYPD lieutenant who was accused of taking bribes from gamblers. In October, and then again in December of 71, Serpico testified before the Knapp Commission. And this is what he said. Through my appearance here today, I hope that police officers in the future will not experience the same frustration and anxiety that I was subjected to for the past five years at the hands of my superiors because of my attempt to report corruption. I was made to feel that I had burdened them with an unwanted task the problem is that the atmosphere does not yet exist in which an honest police officer can act without fear of ridicule or reprisal from fellow officers. Police corruption cannot exist unless it is at least tolerated at higher levels in the department. Therefore, the most important result that can come from these hearings is a conviction by police officers that the department will change. In order to ensure this, an independent permanent investigative body dealing with police corruption like this commission is essential. Serpico was the first police officer in the history of New York City Police Department to step forward to report and subsequently testify openly about widespread systemic corruption payoffs amounting to millions of dollars. Serpico managed to survive and retired on June 15, 1972 one month after receiving the New York City Police Department's highest honor, the Medal of Honor. There was no ceremony. According to Serpico, it was simply handed to him over the desk like a pack of cigarettes. He went to Switzerland to recuperate and spent almost a decade living there and on a farm in the Netherlands, as well as traveling and studying. When it was decided to make the movie about his life called Serpico, Al Pacino invited Serpico to stay with him at a house that Pacino had rented in Montauk, New York. When Pacino asked why he had stepped forward, Serpico replied, Well, Al, I don't know. I guess I would have to say it would be because, if I didn't, who would I be? He has credited his grandfather, who had once been assaulted and robbed, and his uncle, a respected policeman in Italy, with a sense of justice. Serpico still speaks out about police brutality, civil liberties, and police corruption, such as the attempted cover-ups following Abner Luima's torture in 1997 and Amadou Diallo's shooting in 1999. He provides support to individuals who seek truth and justice even in the face of great personal risk. He calls them lamplighters, a term he prefers to the more common whistleblowers, which refers to alerting the public to danger. The name Lamplighter is chosen in the spirit of Paul Revere's midnight ride during the American Revolutionary War. A policeman's first obligation, he once said, is to be responsible to the needs of the community he serves, 
The problem is that the atmosphere does not yet exist in which an honest police officer can act without fear of ridicule or reprisal from fellow officers. We create an atmosphere in which the honest officer fears the dishonest officer, and not the other way around. In an October 2014 interview published by Politico entitled, The Police Are Still Out of Control, I Should Know, Serpico addresses contemporary issues of police violence. Among police officers, his actions are still controversial, but Eugene O'Donnell, professor of police studies at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, states that he becomes more of a heroic figure with every passing year. On August 19, 2017, Serpico gave a speech which was broadcast live on Facebook as he stood with NYPD police officers in New York City on the bank of the East River at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge in support of Colin Kaepernick for his protests alleging a culture of police brutality. The outspoken Serpico was quoted, I am here to support anyone who has the courage to stand up against injustice and oppression anywhere in this country and the world. Agree with him or not, he's not afraid to take on tough issues, and never was. As a result of Serpico's efforts, the NYPD was drastically changed. Michael Armstrong, who was counsel to the Knapp Commission and went on to become chairman of the city's commission to combat police corruption, observed in 2012, quote, The attitude throughout the department seems fundamentally hostile to the kind of systemized graft that had been a way of life almost 40 years ago. End quote. Thanks to all of you who are writing us with hero stories. From moms and dads to mentors to veterans and first responders, we appreciate them all. And we'll find a place for you as the series goes forward. Just email me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. Many more sung and unsung hero stories to come. Apple listeners, Keep those reviews coming. We appreciate them very much, and it helps us greatly in the rankings. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, for Heroes Live Forever 2. We'll be back soon.